this afternoon we are in Psalm 13. We've been uh, going in no particular order, and that's how you find yourself in Psalm 13 on week 10 of working through the Psalms. Um, and you might get sick of hearing me say this, but it's part of our wanting to make sure people are, one, starting to learn where books of the Bible are, and two, that they have it before them or are able to read it with us. And so uh, the way you get to Psalms is just open up right to the middle of the Bible, and typically you should be in the Psalms unless you have a thousand study notes at the end. Uh, and then you go in order till you find Psalm 13. Uh, and that way you can follow along as we read it here in a minute. So, um, this is one of those psalms that, even before we read it, comes with this preface before it. Uh, and this preface tells us two things about the psalm to begin with. First, it says, to the choir master. Uh, this means it was originally written for singing. Uh, and, and you'll find that uh, it's, particularly, uh, it's poetic, uh, particularly in the Hebrew, and, and designed that a congregation could sing it. You can imagine this would be a very short song. There's only six verses. Uh, but that's the way it was written. The second thing we learn is that this was written by King David. Uh, and, and that'll prove important as we start to work our ways through this a little later. Uh, we don't know the particular event. It's not one of the Psalms that tells us that. Uh, but you can imagine of, of what you know about King David many times in his life when he might feel the way that we're going to see he expresses himself uh, within this. Um, and so, uh, and again, just before we read it, just understand the structure. There are uh, three stanzas, basically, of two verses each is the way it's set up. And so verses one and two go together, and they're expressing David's frustrations at God, um, the way that he um, feels. And then verses three and four go together, and, and there David is pleading with God through prayer to respond. And then verses five and six go together, and there we begin to see um, David learn to, to trust the love of God uh, even in this great sorrow in his life. And so that's kind of the layout of what we're going to see. Follow along as I read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The grass withers and the flower fades. pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for texts like this where frustrations from fear of abandonment are laid bare in the words of the psalmist. Thank you because many of us at times, maybe even today, have felt this and have been afraid to speak it to you. Thank you for examples like David in the scripture who show us how to rejoice and to praise you, but also show us what hurt and vexation looks like so that we might learn how to respond ourselves. Oh Lord, please build up your church through your word today. Amen. <clears throat> so I was going to begin this with a, a story about uh, a man or a woman in, in, in history who felt abandoned by God. Um, so I began to, to look for that story, looking through some books, looking uh, on the internet, and many of these stories exist. Uh, but what I found in the process was 
was really a, a number of stories, one after another, uh, of people stating why they left the church, or people stating why they quit Christianity. And you see, the, the common thread through all these was the sense of being uh, abandoned by God or being abandoned by the people of God uh, who profess faith, people who make up the church, hurt people. And as I began reading through this, it was absolutely heartbreaking to just read this accounts of so many who have just walked away, walked away from the only hope for salvation as a result of these hurts that they feel in their hearts. So let me be clear today as we come into a text like this that my goal, my, my hope with a, with a text like this is to prepare you. Prepare you to know how to respond when you feel abandoned by God. To help you understand that you can express your hurt like David does here. You can be honest with God, actually genuinely honest with God. And in fact, you should express your feelings to God. And really, he knows them anyway, so why not, right? But I also want to help you move beyond that, uh, that feeling of abandonment, by, by giving us a view of what God has done for you so that you know how to face spiritual hurts and depression and yet get up again and return to the foot of the cross and, and worship again. Because at some point in your life, you're going to face this if you haven't yet. And so before we, we really get into the text, I want to start with just one very simple observation. And that's this, feeling abandoned, in this life is way more common than you might ever imagine. Men and, and women often feel abandoned by friends, by their family, by their church, by their grown children, by their spouses. And, and while the actual abandonment may or may not be a reality, the feelings are very real. And this common feeling that people have is that no one cares about me, and so God must not care about me either. And so then, here in Psalm 13... What David expresses is this, this deep, heartfelt abandonment. Not only by other people who are children of God or followers of God, but by God himself. And that's what he begins to express here. This is uh, the kind of statement, uh, as we read this, is honestly the kind of thing that we, we tend to think you might hear that from an unbeliever. You know, for instance, the, the well-known French atheist Voltaire, uh, on his deathbed, told the nurse, I am abandoned by God and by man. And that doesn't shock us. It doesn't shock us because he claims atheism. But, but here we're reading the words of King David, the very man who in Acts 13.22, we learn that God said of him, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. You see, David loves God, and so that surprises us a little bit to hear him say that. Uh, David trusted God, to, trusted God to give him victory over Goliath, and, uh, and he saw God actually accomplish that very unlikely victory. He's seen God deliver him in so many places of his life, and yet here David feels absolutely abandoned by God, and he just lays it out there for God to hear, to God. So I want to read that first part again because I want you to see these four lines and I want you to try to feel what David's feeling because sometimes it's hard for us to really emotionally get into where this is. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? See, 
There's repetition here, and repetition in Scripture is meant to draw our attention to it, to, uh, for us to see something. And four times here, we see that phrase, how long? In the Hebrew, this is literally asking, until where? Uh, until where? You see, it's this speaking of, the, of life as this sort of journey, and, and David is expressing that he feels like he's walking alone on this journey. And so these words, how long, also tell us that this sense of abandonment has been going on for a while. It's not just a bad day that he's experienced. See, I think most of us can, can handle the bad day. We can handle a short period of time where we feel lonely or like things aren't going the way that we want them to go. But, but this extended period of time begins to just crush us. Even Job, if you're familiar with that story at the beginning, has this, this great attitude about suffering. And we look to chapter 1 and we commend him. And yet, eventually in Job, we just see him broken down and exhausted until eventually God restores him. And, and for David, this fear is that God it will never come back to him. That's a big deal. When I was five or six years old... Um, my dad coached my brothers in, in soccer, and I would just go along as kind of the mascot. Um, it's the truth. Uh, and, and during the game, since my dad was coaching and my brothers were playing, I would just wander around. No one would know what was going on. But uh, eventually, at one of these places, I wandered around, and I, I found a goat. And I had this rope, like a leash, tied around its neck. And so I just began walking around and telling people it was my goat, uh, which is a complete lie. It wasn't my goat. I stole it. Um, but I walked around the park and, and with this goat, and in the meantime... Um, I wasn't paying much attention because I was, had a goat. Um, and I remember after the game, my family just packed up, and a couple of the kids on the team loaded up into this truck, and, and off, they go, off they went. They drove off. And I can remember seeing there's this long road out of the park and, and looking up just in time to see there's our truck leaving, and I'm not in it, and just panicking. I was crying, and, and, and my fear wasn't that I was alone. Um, in a sense, I'd been alone all day. I still had a goat with me, so I wasn't completely alone. But it was this idea that he was never coming back. This idea that my dad would never return to me. And at that age, I couldn't understand that. Like, it's just gone. I, I don't even know where I live. Uh, and so the, that was the fear. And, and that's David's fear here. This fear that God had abandoned him and is never coming back, ever. And David then asked the question, how long... Will you hide your face from me? That paints a, a strange picture to us. Uh, you know, is God covering his face, or has he put a blanket over his head, or, or what's going on? Uh, but, but we understand this, this idea of hiding, or God hiding his face is, is this, that God the Father is a, is a spirit, right? He doesn't even have a face. And when we speak of him in terms of having uh, the form of human hands, or feet, or eyes, or in this sense, uh, or in this case, uh, a face. It's called anthropomorphism. And that's just a big word. And, and it exists so that we can understand God in a way that makes sense to us. And, and in Scripture, then, when, when it says that God's face is shining on us, it's to say that we have God's blessing. Psalm 67.1 tells us, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So then the image of God hiding his place is to say that he has not blessed us, that he has not shown us his favor, his blessing in our lives. And, um, you know, really, that's, there's a, a term someone mentioned it the other night at, at dinner uh, in our culture, Murphy's Law. You heard of Murphy's Law. Hopefully you have. Uh, hopefully you haven't. Uh, it apparently gets its name by a very frustrated engineer who worked for the United States Air Force. 
Um, you can imagine his experiments were not going well, and, and uh, eventually he came up with this new law of physics, or whatever you'd call it. But uh, Murphy's Law, and, and Murphy's Law states this, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Um, it's the kind of thing a, a pessimist, or as I like to call them, a realist, often subscribe to this sort of view in life. And, and sometimes in our lives, we just feel like Murphy's Law is absolutely in effect. Um, that that's what's going on in our life. Everything that can go wrong seems to be going wrong. And, and um, when we find that going on, there's a sense of, yeah, I know God loves me. I mean, I, I can write that down. I can express that to you. I can tell you that. But really, when everything's going wrong, we begin to question that. We begin to wonder, does he really love me? Would this happen to me if he really loved me? And this begins to happen in every area of our lives, or maybe it has. You might find your efforts at work are failing, or that your parenting has just been disastrous, no matter how hard you try. Uh, that our attempt to minister to others, even with good motives, sometimes proves unfruitful or worse, painful. We feel relationships with others just failing. Parents, friends, co-workers, often, even in the midst of marriage, a spouse can express that they feel all alone and can wonder how... Why has God not blessed these efforts? Sometimes it's just how we feel spiritually. We struggle to have victory over sin. We struggle to find joy in Christ. And this can be especially difficult when we think, you know, Christians are supposed to be some always happy version of Ned Flanders. Just smile, always joyful. And that's what David feels here. It's, it's this sense of, God, why are you punishing me? Why, why have you hidden your face from me? Why are there no longer blessings in, in my life? Why have you not shown me favor in so long? So then David asks a third time, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? He's describing that internal de depression we feel when we feel distant from God. In regards to this, James Montgomery Boyce uh, pointed out that some people are more prone to this. Uh, just based on their disposition, based, based on their temperament, uh, there is a, a natural sense that they fall into this more or struggle with this more. And, and, and what he means is that struggling with depression comes more easily and often to some Christians than others. I know it's a bit redundant there. Um, and I mention this because knowing it's true of you or if it's not true of you can be very helpful in, in evaluating our own feelings to understand, uh, is this something I'm going to struggle with my whole life? Charles Spurgeon, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and many other just solid believers in church history, and, and many that you probably know, ha have struggled with spiritual depression at points in their lives. Um, I also want you to remember that whether you're prone to become melancholy or not, there are often physical reasons that, that drive the emotional feelings. Uh, if you've been up all night with a crying baby, um, maybe you're sick, throwing up all night because of some suspect Chinese food, something of that nature. These things are going to contribute to how you feel emotionally. And I know that sounds a little weird at, at first. Uh, I mention that because I think we underestimate how much sleep and physical fitness actually contributes to our feelings uh, about life and God, which tells us two things. One, um, getting sleep and making wise, healthy choices are, are more important to our spiritual walk than we might realize. They're not completely disconnected. And two, it's a reminder, and this is the more important one, honestly. It's a reminder not to put too much stock in your feelings. See, the love of God for me will not change based on whether I get eight hours of sleep or two hours of sleep tonight. But my feelings will. 
my way of understanding the love of God might change based on that. And, and that's why we need to learn to trust God at his word rather than trusting God at my feelings. That is a huge thing to understand. The fourth and last how long question here is how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I don't think we have a whole lot of enemies naturally in our life. Um, not in our culture today. It's just not the way it works. Um, I'll be honest, I can't stand Yankee fans. I consider them an enemy most of my life. But uh, outside of baseball, I wouldn't really consider them my enemies. I don't plot anything against them. Um, you know, we may find ourselves as, as enemies of, uh, on the opposite side of some political spectrum. But again, that's a collective idea sort of enemy, not, not my personal enemy who's out to get me. Uh, it's not like Batman versus the Joker or something epic like that, you know. Um, also, we do know that, that Satan, whom we don't like to speak of very often, is, is certainly an enemy. Uh, that's what God's teaching us in 1 Peter 5.8 when he says, Be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. Um, so we can relate to this in, in many ways. We can relate to it in regards to our battle against sin. Uh, we can relate to it in the area of politics and ethics. Uh, many of you at times probably see what's going on in the world and feel like your enemy is being exalted over you. Uh, and so then uh, we can relate in that way. And so here we've had these four statements, how long statements rather, uh, of David's. And, and really these are this unfiltered just pouring out of his soul of what he feels. And I think it's good. I think some of us need to be told that's okay. That it's okay to really pour your heart out to God. I think it might confirm that there are some things in our lives that we need to work through. But this is certainly the first step is to be honest with, with God. And so let me encourage you, if, if you're holding on to feelings of abandonment from God or anything else, uh, that you take time tonight or, or this week, at some point... That you don't just feel them, but go to God and express these feelings through prayer. Because while we're always to respect God, that respect should never silence our prayers to God. Verses 3 and 4, then, are David asking God to respond to his prayer. Uh, it's a prayer with a request. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. That first word, consider, is a Hebrew word that means to look, like with your eyes, to look at something. Um, it's a prayer for God to, to, to stop hiding his face and, and to turn and to look at him, to consider him. And so now he's asking God, you know, light up my eyes. And that's a strange phrase we don't know. Uh, we, don't, we don't understand in our, our, our general language. Um, we see something similar, similar with it in Ezra 9.8 where, um, listen to this, it says, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a rem remnant and to give us a secure hold within its holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. See, David understands that unless God intervenes, he is headed towards being killed by this enemy to his own end. And so we've seen here David express this anguish of his heart and we've seen him here ask God to answer this, this prayer of his to return to him. And then in verses 5 and 6, we see this turning point. Uh, it's a huge part in this. This is honestly a really depressing psalm until you get to these verses 5 and 6. And six. <clears throat> Before we read it, I want you to remember that in, in the psalms, 
these changes happen real quick. You're going from line to line. You're like, bam, God's just changed everything. That's not the way it happens in our, in our real life. That's likely not the way it happened in, in David's life. He's looking back on a very difficult experience, and he's expressing it in this poetic way in the psalm. But, but be encouraged, but also be patient. This might not happen immediately. And so David ends this psalm with verses 5 and 6, and he says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, often our feelings of abandonment, they stem from this question. Even if it's subconscious, this this question, somewhere along the lines of, of this, God, what have you done for me lately? And as we evaluate that question, we become disappointed. And I kind of think, you know, God could answer that any way he wants. He he might answer it, you know, well, I've, I've sustained your existence. Or, you know, I've, I've kept gravity working so you don't just fly off this planet. Or, you know, that burning ball in the sky? I've kept it from inching closer and closer every day until you just burn up into nothing. Or, you know, you might not be satisfied with the fa- friends and family I've given you, but at least you have them. And yet, having spoken in the scriptures, God stays audibly silent when we begin to ask questions like this. If we're honest, that can infuriate us, or that can depress us. It can give us a greater sense of that sense of being abandoned. And here's what I love about this. I love how in this list of what God has not done in verses 1 and 2, David then comes around to verses 5 and 6, and he begins to remember what God has done for him. There, there's this change in David where, where, in a sense, he stops asking the question, God, what have you done for me lately? Just ask this question, God, what have you done for me? And David shares that answer. At the most basic level, God has loved him and saved him. Okay, this is an important point. So if you zone me out, If you're falling asleep, now's a good time to wake up and pay attention. Go, listen, because uh, I need you to understand this. If God does nothing else for you in this life, nothing else for you, those two connected truths in verse 5 are enough for God to be worthy of our worship and worthy of our absolutely rejoicing in Him and in life in general. So yeah, life might be tough. But if your faith is in Christ and he has redeemed you for all of eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In verse 5, David says that he has trusted in the steadfast love of God. Steadfast, again, one of those terms we just don't use in our life. It means loyal. It means faithful, committed, dependable, reliable, constant. Do you see that David's rejoicing comes from his knowing that God has not abandoned him? He's believing that. He's seeing that. That despite his feelings of being all alone in the world, he is trusting God's faithful love for him. Where in verse 4, David asked God if he would have sorrow in his heart all day long. Now he says that that very same heart shall rejoice in the salvation that is secured by God alone. I think there's some irony in this when we look at how God accomplished you know, our ultimate salvation in the gospel. 
Uh, the irony is this, is that, when, uh, that Jesus, just before he breathes his last breath on the cross, he asked the Father in Matthew 7, 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken is a different word, but it means the same thing. Abandon me. He's asking God the Father, why have you abandoned me? There on the cross, Jesus was displaying the ultimate act of love so that his own death, in his own death, he might redeem us from our sin and the wrath of God. The irony then is that because Jesus in that moment was alone carrying the weight of every sin that I, you or I will do or have done or will ever commit. And the result then is that now the children of God will never, ever, ever be abandoned. Okay, this is an important thing to understand. This is the deal. You might feel abandoned by God. I don't want to make anything less of your feelings because you might genuinely feel that. And that's what we're saying. Go express that to God. There's something going on that you need to share with him. But we know that God will never abandon us. Hebrews 13.5 tells us that God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We saw a while back in Psalm 23, the beginning of the summer, uh, verse 4 there says, Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He gives a reason. He says, For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, we see how steadfast the love of God is for his people. It reads, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that changes how we view our, our loneliness. And, and by verse 6, we see that David is evaluating the way that God has dealt with him in a very different manner. By verse 6, he's now saying, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Bountifully, that means generously. He's given us more than we deserve. And that begins to give us a good idea of how we apply verse 13 to our lives. First, don't hold back from sharing your true feelings with God. I think that's particularly important to us. We don't tend to be feelings-based people. Um, I think one of our strong points is that we are so grounded in the Word. And, and yet emotionally sometimes we just hold back from God. We we're unwilling to really just lay it out there as we, we pray with him, to him. Uh, so if you feel abandoned by others, by the church, by God himself, tell God how you feel. Because we should always be seeking God, but especially when, when he feels distant from us. Secondly, make sure you understand, your understanding of the love of God for you is not based on your feelings, but on the word of God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon I mentioned him earlier. Many of you might know him, a well-known uh, Baptist pastor. He likes to wear bow ties, like Jacob. Uh, anyway, in the 1800s, he was walking through the countryside with a friend of his, and along the way, he, he saw this weather vane. It blows in the wind and changes directions. Uh, and on it was written the words, God is love. And Spurgeon looked up at it and hated it. Uh, he didn't like this one bit, and he told his friend the reason he didn't like this is that's an inappropriate place to put those words because the weather vane changes direction constantly while God's love never changes. I guess his friend was willing to stand up to his, his famous pastor friend because he told him, you know, I think you're wrong. I think you've totally misunderstood why the farmer put it there. He said uh, that the intended meaning was that no matter which way the wind blows, God is still love. 
And that's good for us to remember that no matter what trials, what struggles, or feelings of abandonment come into our lives, that the love of God for us remains steadfast. So you see, there are times when God brings us to the absolute end of ourselves. And the very purpose of doing so is to lead us to a place where we must rely on God completely. So do rely on God. Do pray to Him, asking what you need or what you believe you need. Uh, third, remember the past blessings of God. It's another very important thing. I'm sure you've heard that before. How many times do we need to be reminded? I know I do. See, remember the small things like, like loved ones being healed, or the joy of good friendships, or beautiful fall weather, or even just the taste of, of coffee in the morning. But also remember the big things, like Christ dying on the cross to wash away your sin. The fact that we have the word of God where he's revealed himself, where he's revealed the gospel and how we might have forgiveness of our sins in a language that we can understand. The way that God is preparing a place for us in his kingdom. I want to end with a, a quote it's from Paul Tripp. He says, Your faith in God should never silence you in the dark hours of grief. Rather, this is when we begin to understand how deep, rich, and sturdy God's love for us really is. He will not turn away from your questions or be surprised by your grief. He will not be repulsed by your anger or turn his back on your pain. He understands the darkest moments of human existence and enters into them with boundless mercy, unending love, and amazing grace. Continues the the Psalms invite us to bring our grief to the one who cares for us more than anyone else ever could. God never turns a deaf ear to the cries of his children. No cry is too anguished for his ears. So pour your heart out to God. Whether you're feeling forsaken or, or rejoicing in his goodness, take both your complaints and your praises to God uh, because he steadfastly loves you today and tomorrow and for the rest of eternity. That's that's what we learn when Christ dies on the cross for us, is this love is forever. Let's pray. Father, that's who you are to us since you have made us your children through the gospel. So yes, Father, we ask that you hear our cries when we face depression or loneliness, when we are fearful about the future, about our enemies, whether that be humans or vices that we find ourselves tempted by, Yes, Lord, hear us and, and teach us to trust in your love, to rejoice in your salvation, to sing for you are good and you are ever present. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, there you are with us. So, Lord, may we find comfort in that. May we find comfort in the name of Christ, which we pray. Amen.